Hello and welcome to the European Football Show, the World Football Index. Um, as ever, I'm your host, Alan Feely, coming to you from Seville in the south of Spain. And I'm joined today by three fantastic guests from different parts of Europe. Uh, in the west of Ireland and Galway, John O'Sullivan. How are things, John? Mighty Alan, thanks. A uh, long, long season comes to a halt and, uh, you know, it ended in spectacular fashion in many ways. It absolutely did. In Hessen, in Germany, Jasmine Baba. How are things, Jasmine? Yeah, good. Um, really excited final exciting final weekend of the season over here as well and yeah just a few more games to go before we know exactly what's going on next year and then finally in the spanish capital of madrid we have a slightly hungover and probably sleep deprived colchonero named sam leverage how are things sam yeah good hungover as you say but worth it for the celebrations and atleti champions again so crazy end to the season and a happy ending for atleti fans for a change most definitely. Great into a difficult season for uh, everybody who can't enter stadiums. Um, but let's begin in Germany. Uh, Borussia Dortmund beat Bayer Leverkusen 3-1 in the final day of the Bundesliga to mark off a really, really strong end to the season. Um, but as you've mentioned uh, off record, Jasmine, before we started recording, it may have thrown up some problems in terms of their succession plan this summer. Yeah, I guess... Um... Edin Terzic did sign, extend his contract with Dortmund and with the new uh, manager, Marco Rose, coming in, it does pose a few questions. I mean, we've all seen the drop-off of form in Marco Rose's Borussia Mönchengladbach team, um, especially since the announcement of his departure from Gladbach to go Dortmund in the new in the new season, and um, basically Eden Terzic has come out, especially the second, the latter part of his interim coaching at Dortmund, has done a completely spectacular job, um, but all in Champions League, in winning the DFB Pokal, and also turning it around domestically. So they finished third at the end of the season, which by my standards and loads of others thought that wasn't even possible. We didn't think they were going to get Champions League. Um, it was really up to the other teams who were in it, Eintracht Frankfurt and Wolfsburg, to finish finish strongly. But, you know, Frankfurt completely derailed. And they've ended up with everything they could have hoped for, plus silverware and the way that people are starting to look at it now is that, first of all, how does Marco Rosa get better from this team? I don't personally think he can. And then also with the possibility of Edin Terzic staying at Dortmund, it kind of throws up management issues at the club. Um, Edin Terzic is really well-liked by the players um, is a strong character of his own. And the players just absolutely love him and he's gotten the best out of the players this season. And the thing is, Dortmund players are known to create drama if things don't is exactly go their way, including going to the board, not really siding with the manager and getting them fired in some cases. Now, we can all see this happen with Marco Rose, especially with things going wrong as it has at Gladbach and him being a more man management 
um, type of coach. Now, if things don't start to go right and things go through a bad patch, there's nothing to say these players won't turn to Edin Terzic. There's going to be some power management issues there and struggles. And, you know, Dortmund have a massive headache on their hands if Edin Terzic 1 goes. Because if they go and Dortmund go into a bad patch and they have to sack Marco Rosa for any, any kind of reason, they'll need to try harder to get someone who knows that squad back into the team. And if he does stay, they'll be just it, it will just be a nightmare to try and manage these people who you've basically got two um, strong coaches, one probably going for a head coach role and a head coach. And then you've also got what it seems like around four assistant coaches and not Marco Rosa's team. So, yeah, quite a big headache for Dortmund coming into the new season. It's intriguing watching from the outside because, I mean, like obviously, Musha Gladbach beat Werder Bremen 4 2 at the weekends. Uh, Werder are relegated. Um, Dortmund's winning that game 3 1. But, like, you know, they won five games in the bounce, the third in the table, a point behind Leipzig, uh, 14 behind Bayern, three clear of Wolfsburg. Musha Gladbach are down in eighth. They'd even made the Conference League Union Berlin did at their expense, a point clear of them. Um, but like I guess from my perspective, like the job Tarsic has done is really, really important for Dortmund's short-term pick future, not just on the pitch, but off it too. Because I mean, if they hadn't been in the top four, then they would have been in a very weak position when it comes to Sancho and Halan this summer. Halan probably would have tried to leave. Sancho would have been able to leave for a, a cheaper price, you could say. Um, whereas now they're in a position of strength in both those cases, looking more likely that Halan will stay than go this summer at least. And while Sancho will probably leave, as you've said before, it'll be for a high price. I mean, they're not going to be in a position of weakness selling him, um, as well as the importance financially of the Champions League brings. But w- what do you think um, Terzic has done specifically that has turned the tide for Dortmund, who were so abject before he took over? I think he's um, a good man-manager, and I think that team kind of needs it at times. Um, but he's also set them well up I think uh, they they know they're not good with a lot of possession at times and they don't have much solution so he just plays them as the most intense team that you've ever seen and in that league especially I guess in the latter part that it, it works for them there'll be a lot that because they're so talented in attack that if you just try and score, outscore your opponents, they will. <laughs> and you've seen it with, um, but you can see sometimes that plan does backfire. Like when they took on Munching Gladbach, funnily enough, in January, they lost, I think, 4 2. It was an, a crazy game. And, but that's all that they've done. It, it is a case of them needing a bit more man management to play to their strengths. And, Terzic has been great for that. He's also not worried about, because he's an interim, he's not that worried to take risks um, and play uh, just slightly different formations, positions. He doesn't really care about the politics in the team, who he should play, who he shouldn't play. And I think that's really, really worked out for him. Um, He hasn't been worried to bring Daoud back in the team and play him, even though the others have been fit. 
He's not been really worried to drop Julian Brandt either. And he's just created a really nice, well-working team, which, you know, we haven't seen that Dortmund team um, perform at that level in the past under uh, so much under Favre. I think the question is, as you said, it's only a short matter of time. It was a short kind of period that he's taken them over. So it's it it's hard to say if this would be sustainable. But in terms of what you get from Marco Rose, there's not really a difference. Marco Rose might be better at developing, but he hasn't been anywhere to say, well, here's his lo- what he's done long term. So to be fair there's just not really much of a difference and you've got more of a reputation with Marco Rosa things not going well and being against what Dortmund need which is probably more solutions in possession would you say that Dortmund's season can can be categorized by before Sevilla and after Sevilla yeah I would say so I think I think that was their turning point really I think as soon as they went out to Man City it was just a completely they they just went all right we did as well as we could we we went up against what is go- going to be the finest one of the favorites in the competition we're still in the DFB Pokal we'll try for that we'll try for the rest of the league they never really gave up I'm but I think it is to do with the kind of positions of other teams in the league as well there was you know rumors of Oliver Glasner going to Leipzig at one point, which made them trail off probably a little bit. There was Eintracht Frankfurt, whose coach Adi Hütter is going to be joining Mönchengladbach. And since that was announced, that kind of form tailed off as well. It's been a really odd season. And I don't think in other seasons they would have made that point deficit up. We mentioned Union Berlin. Uh, They beat Leipzig 2-1 to sneak that conference league plays at um, Wishing Gladbach's expense. Like, how important is it to the club to qualify for the conference league? I mean, obviously, in England especially, there's a lot of kind of negative rhetoric around it. People see it as an inconvenience in many ways, as a Mickey Mouse competition. But I guess it does open doors to clubs like Union, who don't have a European repertoire, uh, to really kind of, you know, enter new waters, right? I mean, how important is it for them to be in this competition, how has it been received in Germany that they made it? I think it, it this goes for the same as England as well. And being an Arsenal fan who was not really sold on the Conference League, I think it depends on where your club stands. If we were talking about a Wolfsburg or a Dortmund dropping into the Conference League, I don't think it would have been well received. Um, someone like Union Berlin, however, who came up... It, whose um, season, this was just their second season up in the Bundesliga, for someone like them to get a European competition is massive um, just because of the stature of the team, the wage bill. You know, they're not a Villarreal. They're not a Tottenham. Um, They are literally, uh, I would say, what a Leeds getting a a European competition so in that kind of way it's huge for them um away from how it's publicly viewed though no one really knows how this conference league is going to be viewed as if it's just a minor Europa League which it probably will be 
Um, I think there's still some skepticism about what it actually holds. But for mid-table, newly promoted teams, that kind of kind of genre of team, I mean, it's massive for them and it's massive for Union and as Fisher to have that European um, European uh, competition for next season. Most definitely. Um, Cologne, I'm not going to try to pronounce it the German way. We've been through that before. <laughs> Uh, Werder Bremen and Schalke are relegated. Like they're not minnows, are they? They're three big clubs in many ways, recognisable clubs for even casual followers of German football. Um, Cologne beat Schalke one 0 on the final day. Still so went down, obviously. Uh, Werder Bremen took a beating off Mushin Gladbach, and Armenia Bielefeld kind of saved themselves in the last day, winning two 0 away at Stuttgart. Um, what's your whole read on the relegation battle as it progressed over the season? And how much of a shock is it that these three clubs are going down? I think Schalke is a massive one. I think, I can't remember if right now if it was two or three years ago they came second in the Bundesliga. I think it was three years ago. So, you know, that's a huge shock. Um, but it wasn't a huge shock a couple of months ago when they had been down there for so, so long and couldn't win. And, you know, five coaches were brought in this season in total. Um so the the club's been badly managed from when they finished second. There's so many players that I could name that went for little or no money to their rivals or overseas um, in some really, really bad state of affairs there. And it, it's the same for Werder Bremen, um, mismanagement of the club. You know, they finished, they went f- flirting with relegation last year, Um only stayed up because of the playoffs. Um, Kofeld's been given ample amount of time. I, I there's uh, people saying he's a good manager, but this time at Werder Bremen hasn't been the best. People will say about money spent. They have spent quite a bit of money on that team. They've got Milo Rashica, Rashica. They've got um, Sargent. They've got uh, so many talented players. So I don't think you can really uh, criticise the amount of money that they've been spending. And Cohn, they saved themselves on the final day with a late goal against Schalke. And, you know, they have they can save themselves against uh, Holstein Kiel in the relegation playoff, which happens in two days' time. And there's two legs. So um, we'll know the result if they, if they go down or not in four days' time. Um, But, yeah, again, they've been floating with relegation. They haven't really upped their ideas. Um, They've spent money, but not really spent on anyone amazing in the team. They stuck too long with coaches that don't really work for them. And, you know, we've have It was a a, a tremendous last day of the season in the Zweite Bundesliga with... Bochum and Gruyffert coming up to the Bundesliga. And we've got Holstein Kiel, who we saw beat so many teams from the Bundesliga in the DFB Pokal Cup. Obviously had to take on Dortmund in the semi-final. They got trounced, but you know, this was a team who hadn't played for four weeks because of COVID and then had all the games to catch up. So um we could see Congo down to 
three new fresh teams for the Bundesliga, but I think the Bundesliga kind of needs that because of all these teams that have been mismanaged over the past few years. Who would you back to come up next season? Oh, of those three? Oh, of the, Which three? Of the three who relegated this season. Oh, okay. Um, I'd probably... Uh, I would probably say Cohn because they've got Stefan Baumgart um, as their manager next season. Um, Werder Bremen, I don't believe we know who their coach is yet, so it's hard for them to say. Um, I would probably say Cohn come, definitely comes back up, but I think it might be hard for Werder Bremen and Schalke. Very interesting to find out for sure. Um, in England, there was obviously an action-packed last day. Not that much to play for just really top four because relegation was settled as was the title race um but definitely some interesting storylines uh chelsea uh beat leicester 2-1 early in the week quite a feisty game that was uh and then followed up with a defeat uh away at aston villa um yesterday uh what did you make of this game john uh the villa game specifically and chelsea's campaign in general i mean it's kind of strange for me because like the way the narrative has changed around them in so many ways. I mean, they kind of snuck in to the top four yesterday by the skin of their teeth, really. Um, what was an imperious start by Thomas Tuchel is kind of tailored off a bit, like a bit more vulnerable now. And, like, I mean, while when both teams, as in them and Man City, progressed to define the Champions League, you would have said it was almost completely even, perfectly even. And, I mean, I know their games between themselves, the season since Tuchel took over, have been in Chelsea's favour, both of them. Um, now you'd have to fancy Man City going to this one, right? Yeah, exactly. It's hard to see Chelsea having the Indian sign over Man City in three games in a row, especially you know in the Champions League final. City have long coveted to be at that exalted stage of European football, and I, I can't imagine them letting it slip on this occasion. Though, like you never know in a once-off game. As as for the Chelsea game, it was probably typical of Chelsea in recent weeks. They were dominant in terms of possession and chances, but they couldn't make it count on the on the goal sheet as much as they ought to have. Timo Werner, who is a new people in Zaggy, he is just interminably offside. He he can't help himself. Like I, I I'm not sure if he knows the rule. Uh, don't ask me to explain it because I just know what offside is instead of being able to actually tell you what offside is. But uh, he was once again guilty of that. Uh, but ben- to be fair, John, to be fair, John, people in Zaggy actually score goals. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he had none of Werner's pace. Imagine if he were quick. <laughs> I, yeah, but it, it was typical of Chelsea in recent weeks. They they had the lion's share of possession and territory and chances, but they weren't able to convert it often enough. Chilwell got their only goal and it was very nicely constructed. Uh, but, but it was Villa who took the spoils, a very nice... Uh, routine of a set piece for Bertrand Traore against his former club. So many players can say that I get about Chelsea, I guess. And then, uh, and then they got a penalty through El Ghazi. I thought maybe it was a bit of a soft penalty, but it, in the end, it, it didn't matter for Chelsea because uh, Spurs, as I'm sure you you'll come on to, uh, defeated Leicester, and you know with Leicester once again with Champions League football tantalizingly close, they fell at the at the at the final hurdle. Yeah, between 4th and 7th yesterday, Chelsea finished 4th with 67 points. Leicester finished 5th, 66, despite being in the top 4 for virtually all the season. West Ham finished 6th, 65. Spurs finished 7th and 62. So Chelsea got Champions League football, along with Liverpool, who we'll talk about later, and United and City. Uh, Leicester and West Ham got Europa League football, and Spurs got European Conference League football. 
Um, like what, what do you prescribe Leicester's kind of, you know, bottle job down to? I mean, like it's been forecast for so long that they would bottle it and they have, I mean, obviously they won the FA Cup, you know, there's a school of thought that winning the FA Cup is better than qualifying for Champions League. While I can understand that, especially as an Evertonian who has been alive since 1995, has never seen my club win a trophy and it doesn't seem to be happening anytime soon either. I definitely understand the appeal of winning a major trophy at the FA Cup over the kind of maybe more cold uh, appeal of the Champions League qualification. But I guess like when you have both in your hands like they did, it's definitely anticlimactic for them to blow it in the last minute, right? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, if you weigh it up, Leicester are not one of the wealthiest clubs. They're not one of the most prestigious clubs in the league. So finishing fifth in and of itself isn't something that's necessarily a shameful thing. But when you look at it in the context, like they've spent 567 days in the top four over the course of the last two seasons. That, by the way, for context, is the longest of any team. And on both occasions, they haven't finished within the top four. And yeah, you, you would be right to say it is an overachievement for Leicester to even come that close to getting there. But when the finish line is so in sight twice in a row in two consecutive seasons, it must be a really, really sickening prospect. And I know like the FA Cup, it does it does provide some kind of solace to them. But I think there's a real culture clash here between maybe the younger generation of football fans and the and the older generation of football fans. The older ones would say that the FA Cup win would, you know, take precedence over everything else and it's a massive coup for the club, which is true. And then I think the older or the younger fans might argue, but that top four would be something that they could build upon. It would be a foundation that they could, you know, really have a strong core going forward and they could use to attract players and they could add to their prestige and they could bring more money in commercially and through just playing in the Champions League. So I think there's there's truth in both of those things. So to miss out on it, it is massively, massively frustrating for them. But, you know, when you look at their underlying numbers, they were more or less where they should have been in the table. You know, in quite a few games, there may be edge games that they might necessarily have deserved to have won. But like you said, we we had called this collapse probably um, you know a long time in advance. We looked at their underlying numbers, and we also looked at their fixtures. They had quite you know a difficult end to season fixture wise. And if if you kind of take that United game out of it, because you know United had to play their second team, so to speak, in that in that contest, they have been in horrendous form for a long time. So you know it's a real bitter pill to swallow for them, but. I don't think they were the fourth best team in the Premier League and the table doesn't lie. So I guess in that in that sense, uh, justice has been served. Who do you reckon could be in danger of being picked off this summer? Um, Yuri Telemans is my bet. I think he's a really, really exciting player. I think he's kind of maybe has all the tools to become a top, top midfielder in the next few seasons. Do you think he could go somewhere in the summer? Absolutely. I think he's only got two years left on his deal. So it's going to get to a point where if he doesn't look like he's going to renew this summer, then the best course of action would be look, would be to look to move him on and recoup as much money as possible. I think Wilfred and Didi is a fabulous player. I think either him or Tielemans or both would be great additions for Manchester United, for example. So I would say that they're two most likely candidates to be snapped up by an inverted commas bigger club. Uh, I think Wesley Fofana is a player with a lot of potential, but I think he would be better served playing regularly at Leicester for the next maybe 18 months to two years before then looking to move on if he you know, reaches a level that's been anticipated for him. So I think those two are, are the real prime candidates. But as Leicester showed with Harry Maguire, they, they drive a hard bargain. So if you're going to sign a player from Leicester, you better bring your best pen and your checkbook. Another player who 
will have a hard bargain driven for him. It is Harry Kane. I mean, his Spurs won 4-2 to kill off Leicester's hopes of Champions League qualification. Like, how would you categorize Spurs this season? I mean, finishing seventh, getting European Conference League, that's not going to save Harry Kane's appetite, is it? Like, I mean, obviously, he's made it public, explicitly public, that he wants to leave the club. Like, where do you reckon they're at? I mean, because from my perspective, they went from having a, you know, very much a process-driven, philosophizing coach like Mauricio Pochettino, all about building a family, building a unit, that kind of thing. And they've gone from that to the polar opposite, to the ultimate results man, Jose Mourinho. And then when that failed, they're kind of, you know, caught between two stools, you could say. I mean, there's no clear front runner for who's going to take over in the summer. I doubt it would be Ryan Mason, 29 years old. Uh, like, how do you categorize where they are right now and, you know, Harry Kane and his future? I think Spurs have an identity crisis. Like you mentioned, they hired this, you know, very holistic, very very attack oriented very modern coach in Mauricio Pochettino who was like universally popular even by fans of other clubs and then they went to Jose Mourinho whose methods are draconian and old school and who rubs everybody up the wrong way and they've done that in pursuit of short-term gains and you know that didn't work out for them so now it'll be interesting to see what their next step is I think no matter what they do, I think Harry Kane's mind is probably made up. But as I've said on this podcast on previous occasions, that you know him wanting to go isn't necessarily tantamount to him actually leaving. Um, we, we've yet to see like how much liquidity will be in the market, what teams will have what money. But certainly, if this was, for example, a pre-COVID market, then you could almost nearly guarantee he'd go and Spurs would drive an absolutely very hard bargain and would they get their pound of flesh for him. But... As it is, I can potentially see one of the two Manchester clubs going for him. And then that will obviously equip Spurs with a lot of money. But we need to see who Spurs hire to see what that rebuild will look like because there's a lot of areas in their squad that could do with like a lot of surgery. I think they're short in goal. I think they're short at right back. I think they need two new center halves. And then if Kane goes, you're obviously looking at you need a center forward. But not only that, what... Kane brings to the table as well as his, you know, supreme goal scoring ability is this brilliant link up play and brilliant synergy. He has a young man's son. He's actually a very, very underrated player who can link the play. And then when you when you think about it in that perspective, you can see how he would be ideal for either Manchester club. He would be great for Pep Guardiola dropping deep and bringing De Bruyne into play or linking the plays their wide players and then similarly you could say the same about United with Fernandez and with Rashford coming in from the side so he, he he would fit a need for either club but I guess if you wanted to say who would he choose between the two I think it's an easy enough choice with Man City at the minute just because they're such a they're such a relentless winning machine and it doesn't look like it's going to stop anytime soon with all the money they have with the young players like Phil Foden and with Pep Guardiola, you know, firmly, firmly in their plans for the next couple of years. I thought that last season there was a lot of speculation that about whether Guardiola would leave. His mother died, so there was maybe a lot of external pressure on him and a lot of uncertainty, but he's looked rejuvenated and renewed this season and uh, he's going to be there for, for the foreseeable future, I think. And, with that, I think, comes success. So 
that that could be a massive, massive lure to Kane outside of any, you know, outside of any financial reward that will inevitably come for it. But I think Spurs have a massive summer for a lot of reasons. E- even if Kane were to stay, if nobody could, you know, reach an agreement with Daniel Levy, then they need to get this next managerial appointment bang on because they're two years out of the Champions League. If that becomes three, then all of a sudden it becomes a wilderness. And then, as you said earlier, sometimes other fans will look at it like we need to keep them down. Someone else will come in and take their place and all of a sudden they're at a lower rung in the food table. And we spoke about it last week, um, but I think things have changed since then. I mean, like it was only a rumor then, just breaking when we were recording, and now it's very much explicit. He's spoken on the record to Gary Neville um, publicly. Um, the rumor is that it would take between 150 and 200 million pounds to prize him from North London. I mean, like looking at this from two angles, as you mentioned, John, like w- would a club, would it be worth their while spending that kind of money on a player of his age? And his injury record. And simultaneously, would Spurs, given the amount of surgery needed in the squad, not be better served in selling him, reinvesting and re- revitalizing alongside a new kind of maybe coach that's full of beans? Like, what, what do you think, Sam, from that perspective? Yeah, I think they need to, to rebuild. But I think very much kind of like a few years ago when they sold Bale, when Liverpool sold Luis Suarez shortly afterwards, you kind of see that too often teams don't invest well and they spend all that money, but they try to strengthen the whole squad and two or three of those signings don't work out. And also because especially in COVID times, every club is going to know that they can demand a big price from Spurs. I mean, we've seen it before with Barcelona when they sold Neymar and then all of a sudden, the price for Ousmane Dembélé, the price for Philippe Coutinho, all just soared up. And I think that's what we'll see with Spurs if Harry Kane does go, is that right now, in a time where it's a real seller's market and nobody has the funds to buy, if Tottenham suddenly have a big budget to spend, then any club that Tottenham's shown interest in a player is going to push the price right up until they get every penny they can out of Daniel Levy. Most definitely. What, what, what about you, Jasmine? What do you think? I mean, where do you think the squad needs improvement the most? And how would you balance it up? I mean, if you were in his shoes, what would you do? It's just hard to say because of not knowing where they're going next season. And I think anything to do with that, it's just you go back to square one. What is the next person going to bring? What's their philosophy? What's, you know, uh, we still don't know what's going to happen with. Champions League, Europe League, it, it's all very bizarre to say. Um, maybe if Tottenham kept in the Super League, they, they wouldn't have to be going through the Conference League. I'm not sure as an Arsenal fan if I'm happier or less happy that um, they've got the Conference League. Um, but yeah, I think even though Kane's finished um, top scorer and top a sister, um, his XG had been going down quite a lot. So, um, and if he wasn't there, who would replenish the goals for Tottenham? Now, if he's got actually going to leave, then you're still probably going to face the same problem with or without him. You need someone coming up through the ranks and attack. You're quite only relying on him for a lot of it. Um, centre-backs as well. I'm not sure. I feel like Jose Mourinho has really muddled that team and I can't say, apart from Kane, 
what particular strength that team has at the moment. So, um, yeah, it depends on which manager they get and the philosophy they take forward. Certainly going to be an interesting summer in North London uh, for both Spurs and Arsenal, who we'll touch on shortly. But first, we'll go down the table a bit uh, to 10th and Everton. Um, If Everton had won against Manchester City, uh, they would have been with a chance to get top seven and get that Conference League spot. Obviously, their goal difference is far inferior to Spurs. Spurs is 23. Everton's is minus one. Quite impressive, that, given how good the start of the season was for them. Uh, Everton were leapfrogged by Leeds and Arsenal. So they're they're 10th. I mean, like obviously, it was a tumultuous week for Everton. They picked up a good win against Wolves um, earlier in the week. Took a 5-0 beating off City. There was a bit of controversy regarding James Rodriguez and private jets and fatigue and all that kind of thing. I mean, I'm assuming everybody knows what happened in terms of James missed the penultimate game of the season and the ultimate game of the season through fatigue. He's gone to the Copa America with Colombia. I posted a picture on Saturday evening uh, before flying out on Sunday. I mean, like, a lot of Rotonians were upset about that. They thought that it was, you know, disrespectful. Peter Reid uh, kind of talismanic midfielder from the team the two-time title winning team from the 80s um, who won the league title in 1985 and 1987 alongside European trophies and uh, FA Cups he was certainly wasn't happy with it um, like what's your take on it John from an outsider's perspective do you think that Everton fans have reason to be a bit unhappy with that kind of thing or do you think that it's a strong the teacup I think they have 150% uh, justified reason to be mad at that kind of thing. I mean, he's paid exceedingly well to play for Everton and, you know, he's decided to take the final two games off the season off to to go back to Colombia. And okay, the club would have had to have okayed that. But what was worse was the fact that he posted the picture of himself on a private jet with his peroxide smile looking like he hadn't a care in the world. I mean, would you at least pretend to care? I think he, he he's really badly advised in that way. And I'm not sure like why the club okayed that. Because like you mentioned, if they had got better results in the final two games, okay, maybe it was unlikely that they were ever going to get a result at City. But even in saying that, they've won at Anfield, they've drawn at Old Trafford, they've been quite good in the road this season. But I don't know why the club would have acquiesced to his demands like that. Yes, he, he's a big name, but he hasn't necessarily torn trees up for Everton. And, you know, I don't think you could ever say he's worn his shirt in his sleeve and ran himself into the ground for the Evertonian cause. So I can 150% understand the frustration with that. More so in the case of the, of the Madrid and Hazard and Chelsea uh, scenario. I think Everton fans are are right to be really angry at that. And I'm sure that if he's there come the first day of the of the season or the first game at Goodison Park, they might let him know about it. It's a weird one because, I mean, obviously, Carlo Ancelotti and him are high-profile figures. They've won a lot in the game. Um, but I think what Evertonians need to realise, and I'm guilty of it too, you kind of almost, you know, cede to Carlo, especially because of his knowledge in the game when he's won. But, you know, nobody's a messiah, nobody's a deity, nobody's this kind of ethereal being. They are just football men and they have to be held accountable. I think from now on, they will be held accountable. I don't think Hamas will get the free pass he's been given so far regarding the games he's missed, the inconsistency he's had in putting together a proper run. And I think the Carlos tactical decisions, which has been questionable at times this season, especially their woeful home form, is going to be uh, put under the cosh a bit more. I mean, like, what, what do you reckon, Sam? I mean, like, 
I always think about, I know it's an unfair comparison. I was thinking about Lionel Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo who are never injured, never injured. And how is it you have these players who are just top drawer players like them who never miss games. And then you have players who are on the rung below, whether that's Eden Hazard or James Rodriguez, guys who clearly have all the talent in the world but don't have the same competitive drive. Like, is it their fault that they're constantly picking up muscle strains and they're fatigued and they're not putting together consistent runs? Because like, you have to shoot less. You have to shoot. You know, Messi did stop stopping playing. Same with Cristiano Ronaldo. So, what do you think? Is that is that is that being harsh? Is that luck on their part, or is it a mental thing? What do you think? No, I think surely in some cases it's there's an element of luck, but I think the main thing is mental. I mean, a lot of these players, you look at them and you look at their kind of lifestyles. I mean, Messi and Cristiano Ronaldo, we know that they're they're freaks basically. I mean, there's no other way to put it, but they're guys who go out and will train non-stop until they can do it and they've been like that since they were kids and that's how they've got so hard but I guess in a way that's almost kind of like anything in life like the people who have talent and the people who work hard to make up for the fact that maybe they weren't born with that natural talent and then I guess Messi and Ronaldo the guys who were born with a natural talent and then have worked as hard as they possibly can these are the guys like Hazard, James Rodriguez Neymar you could even maybe include they're guys who've got unreal natural talent but they've never been as competitive they've never been as hard working they've always had the party lifestyle or they've gone and played Mario Kart instead of warming up before a match I think it's those things that really make the difference I mean we've seen all the pictures of Neymar's parties and things you just can't imagine Lionel Messi or Cristiano Ronaldo taking a week off to go and celebrate their sister's birthday. I mean, it's just not in their their psyche, their mindset. And that's part of what makes them not just elite players, but historic players. And I guess that's what we'll, we'll remember them as looking back, that they were the guys who never missed a single match almost throughout the peak of their career. And I guess it's a shame looking at these guys like Hammers, like Eden Hathard, like Neymar, that they didn't ever push on to the next level. But at the same time, it's part of what makes them who they are on the pitch. I mean, Eden Hathard is very much kind of the laid-back, relaxed player Neymar as well. And you wonder how much that kind of driven personality would change the way that they played if they did have it. Definitely. Um, we mentioned everything losing to Man City. They also beat Wolves, as I said, 1-0 for Charleston scored. He loves scoring as Wolves, to be fair to him. Um, Nuno Espirito Santo was sacked after the game. Uh, he actually came out in comments complimenting Everton saying they're a very very good team very very hard to beat and it's thought that you know such delusional thinking was what got him sacked in the first place Um, but what do you make of his legacy at Wolves John I mean like there seems to be two schools of thought there one school of thought that he's genius that he's done really really well to take Wolves as high as they've gotten and then another school of thought which I am pretty sympathetic to to be honest is that you know they play one way very defensive. They tried to change this season, didn't succeed, or were pretty woeful, to be fair, and were lucky to not get sucked into a relegation battle towards the end, I think, only because the bottom three clubs were so far untethered from them, um, they didn't get sucked into it. Uh, and then also, you have that Portuguese connection where you have the stable of players who a newly promoted or a championship team shouldn't have been able to have access to, like Ruben Neves and João Moutinho, Rui Patricio as well. I mean, like, what what do you make of it? I mean, are you sympathetic of the Wolves' cause, or do you think that maybe they're a bit 
overrated and that they could have maybe, you know, kind of run into a bit of trouble now in terms of taking their next step? I mean, how do they go from Nuno's defensive style to something different? Or are, is that the violation of identity? What do you think? I think all told, he done a really good job, but there is definite and valid criticisms to him. Like, number one, they were unbelievably cagey and almost unwatchable at times. For a very long time, he would play a back three and two defensive midfielders, like just needlessly defensive. And, you know, one of those defensive midfielders was superfluous. Like, there was no need to have that many players behind the ball at all times, and it really affected him going forward. But like ultimately, he got a promoted side. Now, what you say is correct. Like he had access to players that any other promoted club could never have dreamed of. But ultimately, he got a promoted side to seventh in consecutive seasons in his first two seasons. He got to a Europa League quarterfinal. And then after that successful run, I think he was kind of let down. Like Wolves' model has a built-in ceiling to it because they're fishing in the same transfer waters. They don't have access to a huge amount of players. It was beneficial in the first instance, but as it began to progress, I think, you know, their options to have to sign the bigger names was more and more, they were more and more limited in what they could do. And then obviously they lost Diogo Jota, who was one of their most prolific goal scorers. And then Raul Jimenez picks up a skull fracture and he misses the majority of the season. So for the most part of the season, they more or less had no goals in their team. They were relying on Adama Traore, who is an extremely inconsistent player, and then Pedro Neto, who, you know, has a lot of potential, but again, he wouldn't be the most consistent player. So there is definite valid criticisms of him, but I think that he can look back at the job he done there with a lot of pride. But it's one of those rare instances in football, I think, where it's best for all parties. I think he needs to go to a club that has more ambition to kind of rise and not just be a conduit through which a, a certain super agent can run his players through. And then I think that they just need a new voice and a new approach because it had evidently got stale. I think they were probably the worst team to watch in the Premier League this season. I would include Burnley and West Brom in that because Burnley and West Brom have limitations. They have to play that way. Whereas Wolves, you could argue, could maybe loosen up a little bit and play in a, in a different fashion. So I think they were probably the worst team to watch in the, in the Premier League and that, you know, the parting of the ways is going to be good for both parties. Now, it'll be interesting to see where he goes because I would imagine that his stock still remains quite high in football and he obviously has, you know, a lot of contacts through uh, Georgi Mendes. So whether he gets a job back in La Liga where he's done a decent job before or goes back to Greece where he was also good or maybe he goes back to Portugal because uh, Porto's manager, Sergio Conceição, went to Napoli today. So perhaps there's a vacancy there. But yeah, I think it was good for both parties. He has a good legacy, but what you're saying, there's definitely valid, valid criticisms of his time there. Mm. Um, Arsenal picked up two very, very good wins this week, Jasmine, to beat Palace 3-1. At Palace, and then followed up with a tuna win over uh, Brighton Hove Albion. Uh, they finished eighth, a point behind Spurs, two clear of Leeds and Everton, um, and four behind West Ham in the Europa League. Uh, kind of talk, I saw rumours this morning that Edu specifically, but also Mikel Arteta could be coming under a bit of pressure, a bit of scrutiny from the uh, hierarchy at Arsenal this summer. Um, what do you think? I mean, like, is that wrong in your opinion do you think that the strong end to the season that Arsenal have enjoyed I mean they've won uh, five games in a row um, has that kind of maybe not saved Arteta but given him a foundation to build upon for next season 
I would argue what hierarchy at Arsenal. Um, <laughs> uh, the board, uh, I probably could run a football club better than the hierarchy at Arsenal. Um, there, I mean, there's so many things that I could go on about, about the Arsenal hierarchy, um, whether it's down to um, Ralph Ney basically taking a bung for Pepe's 70 million transfer fee or, you know, the infighting of who's going to be like director or CEO and whatever titles they give themselves. If it's Stan Kroenke's taking the money out of the club and not putting it back in. If it's Josh Kroenke's um, acting skills. What else do I have on the list? Um, <laughs> there was one really other good one. Um, I mean, they've got... We've got rid of um, our old kind of sporting director, Ash Rami, who was probably one of the better um, figures in the Arsenal board. And then, of course, we had all the drama over this European Super League that Arsenal somehow got themselves into. Uh, so I wouldn't think that Edu or Arteta would be under any particular strain um from hierarchy because the hierarchy don't care enough um also I, I mean this is a club that was going to give Unai Emery a new contract where when he was basically uh, fighting for relegation so you know when it comes to making lo- logical choices and decisions and reasoning this club doesn't do that um so I don't I don't think any of them are particularly under pressure um last 15 games that Arsenal have won nine drawn three and lost three which is the second best form in the whole league before um, Manchester City um even in 20 games in Arsenal were fourth in form with behind Man United Chelsea and Manchester City it was only the start that they really messed up. So, you know, again, especially with the season that we've had with COVID, the non-breaks, getting to the... The only real disappointment was probably some of Arteta's choices in cup competitions in the FA Cup because I think that was a viable route of silverware and European football. Um you know, probably some of his decisions against Villarreal, not uh, taking a um, back three back into his formations earlier when Kieran Tierney was injured. Um, I mean, but these are all things that you learn and Arteta is still a new manager. This needs to be a project for the long run if you were going to put him in in the first place. Otherwise, he wasn't going to work miracles in one, two years. It's a it's a very long-term situation. So, yeah, there's definitely things to build on. Um, I think he's getting some more... Now, Rausenay is gone, and it looks like Kia Jorbachan has less of a hold on the club. It looks like they can flourish and thrive a bit more, and a few more of those signings have worked out better. The loan for Erdegaard for instance, has been, I think, has been a really good loan signing and hopefully we can sign him permanently. Pepe actually looks like he's fitting in a bit more. There's a lot to like from Martinelli. 
I think there's just a few kind of things we can do probably in um, the left back and actual cover for Tierney and probably a new out-and-out striker. Um, but the things that go deep in Arsenal are probably to do, just do more about coaching in terms of um, lower-level coaching. Steve Bold was relieved of his duties as under-23 coach. Um, but under-23s didn't do very well in the Premier League 2 se- season this year. And also in the physio department, um, we sacked our physio that we got from PSG. Well, we didn't sack him. We didn't renew his contract. So, you know, there have been things that have been behind the scenes of Arsenal that have been going wrong. And, you know, the players and the coaches up front have to deal with that. And I think under everything that's gone on this season, I can't really be angry at the way we've played. We're only, what, we were only six points off top four. It's We've improved five points from last year. It's been a weird season and I'm not willing to change managerial um, like aspects just because of a weird season, really. Definitely a big sum of Arsenal, I think. Um, Liverpool pulled off a bit of a miracle in many ways, beating Burnley 3-0 and then Les- uh, Crystal Palace 2-0 um, on the final day to sneak into the top four. Uh, they finished third in the end, remarkably. Uh, five points behind United. I mean, like after all of that rhetoric, just five points behind United. Something else isn't it the way the media can spin things because, I mean, for all intents and purposes, United have had a stellar season and they're only five points behind Liverpool who've had a disastrous season by all measures. Uh, was it 17 points off City? And two points clear of Chelsea in fourth. Um, I'll go to you first on this, Sam. Like, how satisfying was it to finish the season in this way? Um, to kind of really put the pedal to the metal and rack up those wins, those consecutive wins, they five in the bounce uh, to get there in the end. I think it's justified in a way. I mean, we spoke earlier about Leicester and how long they were in the top four to then drop out on the final day. And Liverpool have almost been the reverse. But their form in the last couple of months has been so good that it's hard to argue against it. I mean, we've seen both Chelsea and Leicester drop points over the last month or so, and Liverpool just have kept picking them up, kept picking them up, and everyone had already kind of written them off. So I think Liverpool have kind of deserved it, and it was that end-of-season form that, that made the difference in the end. But, I mean, I think for me, looking at it, it's almost one of Klopp's greatest achievements at Liverpool. I mean, you think that they've basically been with a central defensive pairing, which has been Nate Phillips and Reese Williams and and players like that, basically since October, November time. And I think any team, as much as we've talked about it, and we've spoken about it before, about how there have been other injuries in other teams, but to lose your three first-choice centre-backs and Liverpool having the weakness of not having a decent fourth choice anyway, then for the January additions to get injured as well, I think it's... An incredible achievement to handle all of those injuries and to still somehow finish third in the league. I mean, and only five points behind United, like you said. I mean, you have to think if Van Dijk and Joe Gomez or John Matip were fit all season, if Jordan Pickford didn't assault anybody in the Merseyside derby, then could Liverpool have been challenging City again? And I mean, how would it have worked out? But I think it is kind of testament um, to Klopp and 
and the mentality that he has. I mean, he called the team mentality monsters a couple of years ago, and I think that's kind of shown again now. So it's true that Mane and Firmino haven't been on the best form, and they have struggled at times, but they've kept plugging away, and at no point did this Liverpool side give up and think that top four was beyond them. So to sneak in at the, the very final hurdle and then to get up to third, even better, is kind of testament to their mentality more than anything else. What do you think, John? I mean, like, for me, it's an interesting one because I saw you tweet quite a kind of, um, what's the word, uh, a lyrical ode to Thiago Alcantara, someone you know I love as well as a footballer. Um, I was actually going to buy a Bayern Munich shirt with his name on the back before I went to Liverpool. Um, I'm glad I didn't, to be honest, because I don't think I'd like to have a Liverpool's player's name in my, uh, in my possessions. But uh, anyway, um, like, he's obviously played quite well. Uh, toward the tail end of the season, he's, he scored his first goal for the club. He's kind of not proved the doubt is wrong, maybe not that yet, but he has definitely shown that uh, he's adapted to the game. He's overcome the problems he's had over the season in terms of injury and illness, that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, like you have obviously put together this impressive run, uh, but at the same time, there does seem to be an end of a not end of a cycle that's too strong, but I think changes are coming over the summer, right? I mean, like it doesn't seem to me that the working relationship that the three strikers have in Sadio Mane, Mo Salah and uh, Robbie Firmino is going to continue like it has been. And obviously, Diego Jota coming in has changed the dynamic uh, anyway. But there does seem to be a sentiment coming from Liverpool that while it is great that they got top three, top four, and they can, in many ways kind of revert to the norm next season, there will be changes this summer. What do you think? Yeah, um, there's absolutely going to be changes. And, you know, one of them is Jorginho Wijnaldum leaving, who's going to leave in a free transfer. It looks like he's going to join Bayern Munich. And I think that's a great signing for them, especially on a free transfer. He's such a versatile and such a player that has barely no injuries in his career. He, his availability is amazing. So that, that's a very good signing for Bayern. He can play any number of roles for them. But yeah, I think there, there, there has to be change because the front three are all going to be 29 by the time the next season starts, you know, and the best, the best case scenario for Liverpool is to let one or two of them regress on someone else's dime. If I had to say who the likelihood of that is going to be, it would probably be either Salah or probably either be Mane or Firmino. I think, they should and probably will look to keep Mohamed Salah at all costs. He's a phenomenal player. He's been comfortably the best of those three forwards all season. And, you know, despite the fact that he's getting on in years, he has this Cristiano Ronaldo professionalism in the way he looks after his body. He's unbelievably strong. And by all accounts, he is uh, he's a freak in a gym. He is constantly there and he looks after himself. So I could see him staying and I wouldn't be massively surprised if one of the other two left in the near future. Um, probably more likely to be Mane because I think he would have a bigger market than Firmino. Don't get me wrong, Firmino is a really good player, really tactically intelligent, hardworking, but he's a bit niche. Like I don't know if he would play number nine for that many other teams to fulfill such a specific role. So I could easily see there being a bigger market for Mane. So I wouldn't be surprised if he were to depart sometime soon. But to bring it back to Thiago, I think he's been a catalyst for this uh, for this change in form in the team. He has been absolutely fantastic for probably eight or nine of the last games. 
And we were talking about James Rodriguez later. And the one thing that really impresses me about Thiago, and I think I can say the same about Kevin De Bruyne, is that yes, they're mercurial talents. Yes, they're playmakers. Yes, they have silky touches, vision to match and lovely passing ranges, but they're both very hardy. They don't shirk challenges. They'll get stuck in. They aren't afraid to mix it with big beasts. Like, for example, yesterday, Thiago beat Sheku Kuyate, who's six foot five for a header. And Thiago is all of five foot seven, jumped completely over him and won the header. It's just, it's fantastic to see how he's adapted that game and how he really seems to enjoy the relative rough and tumble of English football. So I'm confident that he will show his best next season in a Liverpool team, which, like Sam mentioned, will improve just by dint of Virgil van Dijk coming back by the other centre-halves like Joe Gomez and Joel Matip returning. And, you know, that what that will do, not only will it allow better defenders to play, but it will also allow other players who've played so much football over the course of the last year the opportunity to rest. I mean, it's no coincidence that the likes of Andy Robertson's form has maybe dipped this season because he's played every single game. And he's often played, you know, besides centre-halves that have rotated. There's been 20 centre-half pairings for Liverpool in the Premier League last season, as we can now call it. So there hasn't been any kind of continuity or any kind of settlement there. So I'm sure that they will benefit as well and from 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 those centre-halves coming back next season and maybe a couple of additions. So I think it was a huge result to get Liverpool into the Champions League again because we can see the impact, hopefully, in the summer when they go into the market and they address some and they address some issues they have in their team. But like you mentioned, yeah, it does feel like the beginning of the end of this cycle. And let's see how Jurgen Klopp does, because that's the that's the trademark of a great manager. Arsene Wenger done it. Uh, Sir Alex Ferguson done it numerous times is to create a, a second great team or a third great team. I think you could argue that Diego Cholo Simeone has done it after his first title win to win it again this season, after a huge summer outlay last year and integrating so many players in and to to win the title in that second season puts him in that category as well. So uh, let's see what Jurgen Klopp does in that regard in the summer. But surely the fact that he got a team with players who had zero top-level experience at centre-half before last season in Nat Phillips and Reese Williams, who was playing non-league football, the fact that he took them to third, five points off second, is a major, major coup for him. And he deserves any opportunity he gets this summer to be able to strengthen his squad and to put them back into the title question next season. Thiago has spoken in the past of how, because obviously, as you mentioned in that tweet that I talked about, you know, he's born in Italy to Brazilian parents, but grew up in Spain. And he said before that his body and all his physical sensations are Brazilian, the way he intuits things. But um, his mind and his culture and his kind of upbringing is very Spanish. And he feels Spanish predominantly. But then at the same time, his footballing education, obviously it's from La Masia at Barcelona, but he became a world-class player at Bayern Munich. So he's a real unique kind of combination of football and cultures there. I think that once he gets a summer behind him, um, he's going to the Euros with Spain, but he won't be a starter, I don't think. Um, I think he'd be in really good stead next season to kind of, you know, make a serious mark in the Premier League. And I hope he does because, I, like I said before, he's my favourite player in more football. Uh, another guy who's very international in many ways is Roy Hodgson. Do you have a word for him before we sign off in England, John? He retired. Yeah, will not, re- not retire, but he left Crystal Palace, and it looks likely that he's uh, he's going to probably not take a coaching job again. What a career he's had! I mean, I know I'm here to talk about English football, but he's had so many achievements outside the bubble of English football. Be they in Sweden or in Switzerland, he's coached various national teams. He is a reference point for a lot of coaches throughout the world. 
I mean, Jurgen Klopp himself said that when he was doing his coaching badges, they showed them uh, footage of his uh, Neuchatel Zamax team. And they were basically saying, look at this. This is a textbook definition of how to have your team compact and how to have your team aligned in a 4-4-2 shape. And it was footage of a Hudson team. So he's been 45 years in management and he's managed to, you know, he's coached his boyhood club. He's won trophies abroad. He's coached his country. So it, it, it's been a fantastic career for him. He's managed to coach massive clubs as well, like Liverpool and Inter Milan. So, you know, he can go off into the into the managerial sunset being very proud of what he's done as a manager. And, you know, he, he it wasn't easy at Palace this season. They have 12 players out of the contract this summer. They've had a lot of injuries. So, you know, to have them really far away from the relegation battle, they were never embroiled with it at all. Is a, I think it's a fi- fitting final stand for him. He can be very proud of himself and, you know, fair play to him. Definitely. Uh, Jasmine, you wanted to come in there? Yeah, it's just because Roy Hodgson had such an impact on Swedish football, especially in the 80s. Um, Malmö fans, uh, although not officially has his own little stand Fans still call it Roy's Hunna, which is Roy's Corner, um, unofficially. Um, he did really well with them. I think it was five championships, um, played in the Intertoto Cup. He took them to the final of one, which they lost, but it was such a big achievement for them that they, uh, they always loved Roy Hodgson, still a big figure there. You spent a good bit of time in Sweden, didn't you? I forgot. You lived there for a while, right? Yeah, in Malmo. So that's how I got to know, know what a legend he was. <laughs> yeah, most definitely. Very, very likable fella. And I'm sure that uh, he's not done with the game just yet. Maybe an upstairs role or something could be on the horizon. Who knows? But uh, definitely they missed very much a, a great, one of football's great characters. Um, going to Spain... Sam, obviously a fantastic weekend, as uh, John mentioned there, for Cholo Simeone and Atletico Madrid. Uh, in typical style, they didn't do it the easy way. Uh, they conceded first to a Real Madrid youth product, uh, went to goal down, and then came back to win 2-1 at the Jose Zarilla uh, Real Valdez Stadium. Um, Luis Suarez scoring the winning goal again after scoring the winning goal against Asasuna last weekend to put them in a position where they could win the title on the last day and it was in their hands. I mean, Real Madrid did their end of the bargain. They beat Villarreal 2-1. Uh, again, Karen Benzema integral for them. Um, but the title is Atletico's. Uh, what was your feeling on the kind of final match day and how how kind of... What's the word looking for? How... Not vindictive, but how... Jesus... How kind of... Okay, I'm struggling here. <laughs> how, how, how satisfying was it for Atletico? I mean, and for Choli Simeone specifically, because as John mentioned, he has built two title-winning teams. There was only, I think it was only Koke um, was a, around for the last one in terms of the actual starters in 2014. Like, to do it twice with not just two different squads, but two different playing styles... I mean, how... God, I'm still stuck for this word. I can't think of the word I'm looking for. But, uh, oh, no. How vindicating. How vindicating was it for Simeone in terms of his reputation in European football as a coach? I mean, he really is one of the greats, isn't he? Yeah, definitely. I mean, 
I think around this time, a year and a half ago, I guess it would be, that Diego Simeone was getting a lot of criticism that he couldn't evolve, that he couldn't build a new team at Atletico. He was too stuck in his ways, and this season has just proved that. I mean, there's not been too many major changes this season. Luis Suarez, obviously the big one, but beyond that, there's not been too many other major changes in terms of the, the personnel available to him. And he's really adapted it. I mean, this isn't anything like the Atletico Madrid of 2013-14. And like you said, Coque is the only regular who, who was playing that season and is still there. The other one is Jose Maria Jimenez. He was the only other player in the squad at the time, but he only played one game back then. So it's two totally different two squads, two totally different playing styles. And I think for Diego Simeone, it kind of justifies everything that he is one of the, the best coaches in the world. He's not just... Uh, a defensive coach who got lucky because Barcelona and Real Madrid both had a bad year. And already this year in some of the press, you're saying that, well, it was really good from Simeone, really good from Atletico. But it's because Real Madrid and Barcelona had bad years as well. I don't think that's fair either to, to do that. I mean, you look at the squads that Real Madrid and Barcelona have and you can't compare them. And then, I mean, I think Atletico's budget is 46% of Real Madrid's budget this season. So even if Real Madrid have a bad year, they should still be beating Atletico in the league. But I don't know what it is about La Liga this season. It's come down to to 60-second periods almost and have decided the title. And Real Madrid had one against Sevilla only a few weeks ago, where in 60 seconds it went from a penalty that wasn't originally given. And then Benzema went up the other end and won a penalty, which was given, but Varg bought it back for Sevilla's penalty. And that basically gave Atletico the lead in the title race again. And then 60 seconds on, on Saturday where Karim Benzema thought he'd scored and VAR called it offside at almost the exact same second that Angel Correa scored and Atletico equalised in Vial lead. And those two moments have been the real the real turning points, I think. For Atletico, it's very much this idea that they have that they suffer to win and and they've really suffered. They've dropped a lot of points in 2021. And and a lot of times this year, it's looked like they wouldn't be able to hold on to the title, but they've just about got away with it. And it's because of that kind of grit and, and Simeone philosophy of fighting until the very end. And just there was reading about Simeone, how he's made it called a meeting of all of the, the people on the gates at the Wanda Metropolitano and at their training ground, all the security people and things like that, and said... You're not going to say good morning anymore when the player is going to come into training. You're going to say, we're going to be champions. And so apparently that's been going on for the last week or two at Atletico. And it's very much that mentality that is driven into them that, that this team was going to be champions. And in the end, they made it happen. I mean, it's such an interesting team, this one. I mean, there's so many different components to it, like just to get a bit into the weeds for a second. I mean, like obviously, Jan Black made some vital saves, uh, penalty save against Alaves specifically few weeks back I mean he's overperforming XG wise in goal in terms of keeping out more goals than he should I think consolidating his status as you know the best goalkeeper in the world in my, my opinion at the other end you had Luis Suarez who obviously went through a bit of a dry patch recently but has turned up a game when it mattered scoring goals overperforming in his XG in terms of the final third so you both ends really were kind of you know probing above expectations in many ways. And then also you'd Marcus Llorente, who in my opinion is a heartbeat of this team in terms of he's unfancied by Madrid, kind of cast aside by them, even though his family are obviously steep in the club's history. 
He's gone there, worked his way into the team, broke into the team. And like Suarez is, you know, overperforming in the final third, doing serious bits, really playing really, really well. Um, and I expect him to start for Spain this summer in the European Championships. And then also you have somebody who I think embodies it in a different way in, in Kieran Trippier, because again, he wasn't, you know, fancied when he left Spurs. There wasn't a clamour for his services. He was kind of looked at, not as a has-been, but as somebody who's maybe a bit over the hill in terms of didn't quite live up to what we thought he could have been at the 2018 World Cup, for instance, when he scored the crucial goal to take England to the semi-final. Um, or was it in the semi-final? I can't remember. Um, yeah. but, but I guess... Well, I know, think when England fans yeah. now, looking at it, they're kind of almost writing Trippier off, that Trippier shouldn't make the England squad. And, and what about Premier League players? What about Trent Alexander-Arnold? What about Rhys James? Whatever, but... I think Trippier this season, in terms of consistency across the whole season, has been the best English right back by by some distance. I think it's too easily forgotten when when you're a Premier League English fan and you don't watch La Liga. But Trippier this season has been one of La, one of Atletico's best players and probably the best right back in La Liga. I agree completely, and I think as well his importance in number seen when he was out for that three month gambling ban. Because I mean, not only was it his absence, but they played, you know, obviously Mar- Marcus Llorente in his position during that time, and you lost the impact Llorente can offer in the final third. So it just showed how kind of pivotal Trippe is to that machine because he was providing out balls, he was providing width. He was providing set pieces. And when he wasn't there, that coincided with Atletico still perform, right? Exactly. I think his his role is one that's almost as important to Atletico as Trent Alexander-Arnold is at Liverpool. That You, you think of a right back, I think they're not going to have too much influence on the play. But in that three-month period, he really showed that while he's not quite as central or not quite as offensive directly as, as Alexander-Arnold, he allows the players around him to play and and the importance of his role completely changed without him there. And Vesalico came in and was nothing like it. Llorente dropped back and Atletico lost a whole dimension in their attacking game. And that was when results started to drop off. And I think it really like highlighted the importance of him. But, but also with the whole spine of this team, like you said, I mean, look back at 13-14 when it was a very clear spine of Courtois, Godin, Gabi, Diego Costa. And this year it's similar again. Oblak, Savic, Koke, and Luis Suarez. And I think that's fine. And then with players like Trippiani and Rente operating down the flanks and and being really consistent all season through, I think that's what made this Atletico team such a competitive team and and so much more competitive with Trippier in the team. What are your thoughts in the summer? I mean, there's obviously gonna be activity. Uh, I think Sauer looks like he could be leaving. Um, there's talk in the Spanish press about a possible swap deal. Um, Antoine Griezmann for Joao Felix, who's obviously been a, only a bit part player in this political team, really doesn't seem to properly fit in with the kind of, you know, Cholismo. Um, what do you think is in the horizon for Atletico? There's obviously, you know, could be interest for some of their players. Are you optimistic that they can retain their stars? Um, you know, Old Black, for instance, and Marcus Llorente. Will Luis Suarez play for another season next year? He's an option to not do so if he doesn't want to. Um, and he has a tire towards the back end of the season. Um, will they move in the summer? Uh, because obviously both Madrid and Barca will. Uh, what do you think the summer holds for Atletico? I think the best thing that Atletico can do this summer is to not 
sell anyone and not really need to buy anyone. I think the the one gap that they have in their squad is the, the reserve striker where Diego Costa left in January. Moussa Dembele came in on loan but hasn't really done much. I mean, his biggest contribution has been jumping out of the way for Luis Suarez's goal against Osasuna. So they definitely need to look at that area and try and bring someone in. I'm not sure who would be available. There have been very few names linked at all, but that will be the target for, for Atletico. And in terms of outgoings, I can't see Jao Felix leaving. I mean, the club have invested a lot in him and and Diego Simeone has invested a lot in him. And I think Jao Felix is a player who can go through great runs of form and some not so good runs of form, but I think he is improving. And I think you can learn a lot from Thomas Lamar, who who took two seasons to get used to, to Simeone's system, to get used to Atletico Madrid's tactics. But this season he has, and he's been outstanding. And if Jao Felix can kind of step up and kick on, he's still only young. And since he's moved, he's now got a La Liga title in his pocket. So I think there is a reason for him to carry on. I can't see Atletico going back for, for Antoine Griezmann. I mean, the way he left didn't leave a great taste. Um, he's getting old. He wants big wages. I just don't think that would work particularly. And the only other guy who could move on uh, realistically, I think, is, well, there's two. I mean, Trippier, if he decides to move back to England, but I think Aleti would do all they could to to keep him. And Saul, but I think Saul is the kind of guy who loves Atletico so much. I mean, he grew up as an Atletico fan. He spent his whole career, basically, since he joined and was on loan at Rio for a while, but he's been at Atletico throughout and... I think he's the kind of guy who this title win might have just convinced him, right, no, I can get back to it next season. I can get back to my level and force my way back into the team. And as well, the element that I'm not sure who would come in and pay the price for him that Atletico would demand. I think Saul is a player that Simeone appreciates because he knows that he can fall back on him. And that's what he's done towards the end of this season, calling on Saul time and time again to, to come in and fill a gap. And he's done it pretty well. So I think a few months ago, if you'd asked me, I would have said that Saul would be leaving this summer for sure. Now, I think not so much. He's got more game time. He's won the title. And in so many of these videos and pictures of the title celebrations, he's the one out at the front leading the way. And I don't think that's what you get from a player who wants to leave this summer. Guarda Madrid, I mean, it's obviously a very tumultuous summer ahead you could say in many ways there's real uncertainty over Zinedine Zidane's future. I mean, it looked obvious that he was going to go but he's still not left yet, um, you know. Uh, Sergio Ramos is out of contract uh, this summer, left out of the Spanish squad today, at 35 years of age now. You know, it's looking very unlikely that Madrid would have been to give him the multi-year option that he wants. Um, and I don't think that he would backtrack either and sign a one-year deal. So I think an exit looks most likely. Uh, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty over who they can bring in in the summer. Eden Hazard linked with Chelsea today. Like, what do you think the future holds for Madrid this summer? I mean, how big a window is it for them and how big that is that managerial appointment going to be if Zidane does go? It's huge, but with Real Madrid, I mean, Florentino Bredes has always been such a smart operator that everything's always been pretty well thought out, pretty planned ahead. He's always got a plan B, a plan C. And right now, it just it feels like Real Madrid are a total mess. I mean... Zinedine Zidane in today's reports coming out saying that Zidane wants a week to think about his future. It's pretty obvious to everyone that Zidane isn't going to continue. I don't think the club are desperate for him to stay after not having won a title this season. 
And I think Zidane doesn't want to stay. I mean, he doesn't want to lead this renewal of the squad that they talk about. He doesn't want to force Marcelo and Sergio Ramos and these players out. And so I think this is the natural time to part ways for for Zidane and for the club and and also for some of the legends. Like you say, I mean, with Sergio Ramos and being left out of the Spain squad, you wonder if he might just be convinced now in the next couple of weeks to say, all right, then I'll do one more year at Real Madrid. I'll go out, even if I have to sit on the bench all of next season, but I'll go out with fans in the stadium and I can go out a hero. Whereas if he leaves now, it's really going to be a damp squib kind of ending to to such an amazing career at Real Madrid. But I'm very surprised that we're at the end of May and we're still talking about whether Zidane will be there next season, whether Ramos will be there next season. I mean, it's the coach and the captain and Real Madrid don't seem to have a very clear plan of if they're going to be here next season. And if they're not, coach-wise, I think it's going to be a very difficult choice. I mean, some have said about Raul, and Raul is a, a very promising coach and really impressive what he's done with Castilla, but he doesn't have any experience and he would be coming in, moving on a lot of the the heavyweights in the dressing room, and that's going to be a tough task for a guy with no real first-team coaching experience. And it might mean that some of the press, some of the fans get on his back a bit more quickly than they usually would if things don't get off to a great start. And equally, if it's somebody like Allegri, who's the other candidate that's been linked, is that really what Real Madrid need? I think they do almost need more of a Raul figure, a guy who's going to come in and and rebuild the squad from scratch and try and build a long-term project. And I'm not sure that Allegri is that kind of guy. And well, considering the style of football as well, Allegri's way of playing isn't the kind of football that Real Madrid fans want to watch. So Florentino Perez has got his work cut out and and considering how much work he has to do, it's, it's strange that more decisions haven't been taken or at least aren't publicly taken at this point early on in the summer. And then heading north to Catalonia um, is also a big summer on the horizon for Barcelona. Uh, Joan Laporta has actually spoken explicitly about this. He said that this very week is going to be you know, possibly one of the most decisive weeks in Barcelona's uh, modern history in terms of decisions he's going to be taking this week. He's going to be speaking to the so-called sacred cows, the likes of Gerard Piquet, Sergio Busquets, uh, Sergio Roberto, Jordi Alba, guys who until now have been untouched by the club in many ways. And basically it seems lowball them. And if they accept the offer, they can continue. If not, they've moved on. Uh, there's also Lionel Messi to be discussed. I mean, his future is still undecided. It looks like he could go to the Copa America without having signed the new deal and actually have his contract expire while he's playing for Argentina at the Copa. Although, obviously, Pep Guardiola kind of almost dropped the bomb this weekend that uh, Sergio Aguero was close to joining Barcelona and that Messi um, is going to continue with the club. And then there's also, of course, the issue of the head coach. I mean, Marlon Koeman's days look numbered. Uh we talked about uh, Leicester bottling the top four. Barcelona, in many ways, didn't bottle the title because they never had the title in their hands coming to the final stretch. But they certainly are the team with the highest ceiling, I think, in terms of their squad this season. And they could have done so much more than they actually did do. And they were in a very, very strong position heading into that back end of the season. And they blew it. They dropped points against Granada. They dropped points against um, Levante. They dropped points against... 
Atletico Madrid, they dropped points against uh, Celta Vigo. I mean, it really was a bit of a bottle job there, so I'd expect him to move on. Um, again, his successor was kind of up in the air. Like, what do you make of the whole situation facing Barcelona? There's so many moving parts there, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, so many big characters who are so important in their history. I mean, very much like Real Madrid in a way, we're kind of moving on from that whole Guardiola Mourinho era and the stars who are still clinging on. And I think surprising almost to see some of the media reports saying that all of those sacred cows, like you mentioned, the PK, Busquets, Jordi Alba could all be moved on this summer. And it does seem like a bit of a negotiating tactic to say that all of them will be, but I think Barcelona have the better foundations in terms of their current squad. I mean, if I had to choose the young guys at Barcelona, Pedri, Frenkie de Jong, uh, Usman Dembele, or the Fati. young guys... Andrew Fati. Andrew Fati, of course, as well, who everyone's almost forgotten about after this season, having so many injury issues. And then you compare that to Real Madrid, and I guess you've got Fede Valverde, Eder Militao, Vinicius you're choosing Barcelona every time. So I think they have got the foundations there, but they need someone to come in and, and move on the older players or decide which ones can help bring younger ones through and then just go with it. I mean, they don't have a big budget, so it is going to mean a couple of years of a rough ride and and struggling. And the concern for me would be that Sergio Aguero is exactly the kind of player that they don't want to be signing. I mean, they got rid of Luis Suarez for being too old, not in the best shape and on big wages. And here we are 12 months later where they're signing a player that Manchester City want to get rid of because he's too old, not in the best of shape and on big wages. So some strange decisions from Barcelona, but I think the foundations of what they have is much stronger and the right coach could do that. I'm still not convinced that it's time for, for Xavi, which is what, everyone is talking about and everyone hopes for in terms of Barcelona fans. I think we could see very much kind of a repeat of Laporta's first presidency where we had the kind of the almost the interim coach of Frank Reichard who came in and settled everything down, moved on some of the older players and then started a new generation, not quite getting results, but being the scapegoat almost to set everything up for Pep Guardiola to come in. And whether that means there's an argument to put up with Ronald Koeman for another year, even though he hasn't been amazing this season. I think, look back at last summer with Lionel Messi and his Burofax and and all of the crisis that was going on at Barcelona then. If you said then you're going to win the Copa del Rey and come third in the league and within the last few weeks of the season you'll still be in with a shout, I think most Barcelona fans would have taken it. So, sure, it's easy to look at Ronald Koeman and say you threw the league away in the last few weeks, but to even be in contention for the double with a few weeks of the season to go, I think is a pretty good achievement from from him. True, but I guess if you look at their run in the Copa, they didn't face, obviously they faced Sevilla, uh, who you could say bottled the second leg. I mean, they went to Camp Nou with an advantage and threw it away. Um, as they had a habit of doing this season in the big games, Atletico and Real Madrid were both knocked out by lower tier division, lower division uh, sides. Yeah, so I think Kerman's the, the best coach. Run, you know? Yeah. yeah, I don't think he's the best coach by any stretch of the imagination, but I'm not sure that now is the time for Xavi. And of course, for Xavi to come in and move on all these players who he played along for so long could be a tough task. And he's clearly not in any rush to come to Barcelona. I mean, he's spoken about how he wants to stay in Qatar until the World Cup. And, and obviously, I imagine there's some financial obligations there. So is it 
right that somebody comes in for another year, another 18 months, and then once that World Cup is over, Xavi can move from Barcelona and and have kind of a new project to start with without the the weight of those big names who are still at the club. So it's a strange time because I don't think it makes any sense to be chopping and changing between coaches who are only going to be there for a year or two. So if it is going to be Koeman, then I think everybody will know that his future long-term in two years' time isn't going to be still being Barcelona coach, but it's basically a waiting game for Xavi, which unfortunately for them, they've been playing already for a year now since he turned them down last last winter when they sacked Ernesto Valverde. So there's also going to be that element in these talks that I'm sure are going on behind the scenes with Xavi of when will you come because the club has to move on at some point and if you've got commitments in Qatar that we have to make a decision and and appoint somebody else so if that's going to be the case. Xavi certainly seems very uh, conscious of picking the right time to come and I guess Kuhn does have another year of his contract left so I don't know. At the moment they're so sure a new coach seems kind of chaotic but uh, I think we'll see as the following weeks kind of come and um, what's going to happen. But just, like, Jasmine, what's your take on Aguero? Because, I mean, I, I think it's an interesting one. I mean, like, I know, obviously, it's a very similar case as far as in many ways. They're the same age, more or less, 33, 34, uh, both diminished to what they were at their peak, um, but still able to score goals. I mean, like, Aguero scored a brace against Everton on uh, Sunday. And I think he's different as far as in that he's more intelligent with how he presses. I think he changes game under Guardiola a lot. I think Suarez relies more on kind of dogged will and kind of energy whereas I think Aguero has always been a kind of a nice cold assassin in many ways and there's an argument to me I think that you know the slower pace of La Liga uh, defences that aren't as physically robust could give him space and energy to create more goals and obviously there's the obvious link with Lionel Messi he's one of his oldest friends I mean uh, I, I think I have to kind of agree with Sam's point in the case of you know, is this a signing Barcelona wants to be making? It's not really inventive, it's short-term. But I do have to agree with you in terms of um, comparisons with Suarez and what he could do in in La Liga. Um, I mean, I'm a massive fan of Aguero. He is, I don't know what, it is about him. He is so technical and graceful, but so strong and strong-willed. Um, and it makes it. It's been a fantastic time watching him in the league for so long, in the Premier League for so long. But yeah, I I think despite it not being inspiring, maybe not the the signing Barcelona fans particularly want to see. Um, I still think he could do well no matter where he goes and I think Spanish League back to the Spanish League would be a good fit for him What's your thoughts John? What do you make of his legacy um, in England? I mean obviously today's last game for City at the weekend against Everton um, like I was looking back at some of his goals uh, this week and I watched back the famous goal against QPR and I was struck by how underrated it is because if you actually watch the goal I mean at first glance, it's obviously caught up in the whole chaos of the and the emotion of the moment. But if you watch the goal coldly, it's actually a phenomenal goal because the fact that he delays the shot, like I mean, so many strikers were snatched at that opportunity, but he delays, creates space, rides the challenges coming at the same time, and has a presence of mind and the quality 
to finish in that most stressful of situations. Like, I mean, he really was one of the best strikers Premier League's ever seen, right? Oh, absolutely. 184 Premier League goals. And I think maybe the best aspect of Aguero's game was the fact that he was rarely consistently fit, but he could come in from the cold without much rhythm, without tune-up matches, and just be sensational, just, you know, right off the bat. I mean, yesterday was like he came off the bench and he scored two goals with a click of a finger just like that. And, you know, that's that's often been the way for his Premier League career. So you have to think, wow, if he was more regularly fit and maybe a little bit more robust physically, then he could have easily broken a 200 goal mark and he could have been, you know, maybe one of the greatest players full stop, not just strikers to ever play in the Premier League. So he leaves an absolutely massive legacy, five Premier League titles. And now it, it'll be interesting to see how he fares at Barcelona because for for them, it's probably not a fantastic move because the rationale behind letting Suarez leave was that he was old and he couldn't press and that it would be difficult to play a high-intensity style of football with both him and Messi in the forward line. Well, then Aguero is roughly the similar age, but he's less physically robust than Suarez is. So... It just points to a lack of real joined up thinking at Barcelona in the hierarchy there. And it's almost like they've, you know, they've delegated and outsourced their uh, recruitment to Lionel Messi, you know, which is he's probably, though, at the same time, I'm sure a Barcelona fan would tell me that they're so inept at, at certain levels in the club that, you know, Messi is probably the best person to trust in that capacity. So it'll be interesting to see how he does there. But certainly he is, yeah, he's definitely one of the best players that's ever played in the Premier League. And that goal that you mentioned against QPR, I mean, everybody is expecting him to go across the keeper, I think, including the keeper himself, who was Rob Green. But he sn- he snuck it in at the near post with such venom. And it's, it's easily one of the most iconic moments, I think, in football in probably my lifetime watching the game. So probably the last 25 years and uh, he'll he'll go off into in, into Spain with the well wishes of every single Manchester City fan because he's arguably their greatest ever player. Definitely. Was it him or Paddy Kenny in goal? I thought it was Paddy Kenny. Oh, it was Paddy Kenny, excuse me. Yeah, yeah, I remember the big Irish head in him, yeah. <laughs> sure, Irish head in him, exactly, yeah. They, they were so close to bottling that game. Joey Barton had been sent off, but despite yeah. that, they still, went into, uh, they still went into stoppage time trailing and Ed and Dzeko got the first one and Balotelli with his only Premier League assist you know set up for Aguero onto a plate and the rest as I say is history but you know with the Martin Tyler commentary and the celebrations and the shirt comes off it's it's every inch iconic I remember watching it at home it's crazy crazy moments for sure I distinctly remember watching it with my dad in the living room crazy day but uh but yeah I mean a lot of reports that he was not happy with how his exit was handled, that there's a bit of bad blood between him and Guardiola. I mean, obviously, Guardiola was very emotional talking about him on Sunday. I think, personally, he's nothing but respect for him, but I think Guardiola has the capacity to make these cold decisions sometimes, you know, and I think that Aguero's camp is unhappy. Uh, there was a report in Athletic today by Sam Lee, who's very close to City, saying that the City are a bit worried that Aguero is going to speak to the Spanish media, that Aguero has intimated that he will speak to the Spanish media about his how his time ended at City and there seems to be a fire under his belly so I think it's going to be interesting to see how he does at Barcelona next season I certainly see both arguments um, but yeah I don't know we'll see and also on the Messi situation I mean like he's won the Pichichi this season 30 goals 31 goals sorry um, but if you look outside of Messi where the goals came from Griezmann chipped in so did Usman Dembele but the fourth top scorer for Barcelona is Anzu Fati who we just mentioned earlier 
but he's been injured since November. He did his meniscus against Real Betis, has been struggling to come back since then, and he's still the fourth top scorer for Barcelona. That's a disgrace. Absolute it's, disgrace. It's a real mess. And like the managerial the managerial situation is surely not going to help them in terms of trying to recruit personnel for next season. Like, for example, I mentioned that Jorginho Wijnaldum looks like he's going to go to Bayern Munich. I'm sure that if Ronald Koeman was sure of his job at Barcelona next season, that Wijnaldum would have went there. Similarly, what does that mean for Memphis Depay, for example? So, you know, it, it's a bit of a mess. Juan Laporta comes in with all these big promises that he can do X, Y, or Z, but I think he might have two hands tied behind his back in many ways. Well, the Memphis thing is apparently that he's take, he's agreed to sign. The deal is done, but it's the conditional on Koeman. If Koeman stays, he's coming. If he's not staying, he's not coming, which is kind of bizarre when you think about it. But uh, Aguero also is taking a serious pay cut to join Barcelona. He's earning 12 million euros net per season at City. He'll be earning 5 million euros net per season at Barcelona. 58% pay cut. So, uh, yeah, going to be interesting for sure. Uh, just finally, Sam and La Liga, before we finish up, a couple of other interesting results outside the big three. Uh, specifically Real Betis coming from behind to beat Celta Vigo and secure Europa League football after three years out. Uh, and then also Elche being Athletic Club 2-0 to secure safety from relegation. I mean, what's your thoughts on the kind of Europa League race and also the relegation battle of the season in La Liga? And specifically the great escape, you could say, of Elche, who are favourites for Manny to go down this season. And also, of course, uh, Euro Betis. I mean... Betis are obviously a huge club. Uh, their fan base is long-suffering. They really appreciate running European football next season, right? Definitely. And I think one of the big headlines that was almost forgotten about in Spain over the weekend was Villarreal. I mean, they conceded the the two goals in the last five minutes against Real Madrid. And that, with Betis' comeback against Celta Vigo as well, meant that they're playing conference league football next season unless they win the Europa League final on Wednesday against Manchester United in which place they in which case they'd be playing Champions League football so there's a real huge motivation for them to get it over the line even more than there was already against United and that'll be a big challenge for them but I think yeah with Betis it's a huge club that deserves to be competing for European football and so that they're the team in Europe have lost the fewest number of games in 2021. They've only lost twice in this calendar year and Manuel Pellegrini has really started to turn things around there. I mean, they're a club who are very up and down, have very good season followed by a very bad season and Pellegrini has kind of brought in some stability and used his experience and they're really looking quite quite promising with the team and the, the spine that they're building out there and just today as well, Joaquin, Joaquin the, the captain, who's a legendary figure there, has signed a new contract. So he'll be at Real Betis beyond his 40th birthday in the summer. And that's going to be a really incredible story to see him at, at 40 playing in Europe, in the Europa League with Betis. And then the other point you mentioned about Elche surviving is just, well, it's an incredible achievement, really, because you think that they only got promoted from Segunda to Primera through the playoffs in the summer. I think they had something like two weeks to prepare for the new season. So to do that, and Elche aren't the best run club. They're not the most stable. They've got some bizarre figures involved behind the scenes. And to do that with all the transfer turnover they had, I think there are only four or five players who were still playing from their team last season to do all of that and stay up. Uh, with the help of Fran Escriba, who came in a, a few weeks back and helped kind of stabilise the ship a bit and has made a real impact. And it's an incredible achievement for Elche that they're still 
going to be in Premier next season. I think the fans had a big say there, and it's one story which has gone under the radar a little bit as well. That it was Wesco and Elche basically battling for survival on the final day, both playing at home, and Elche had fans in the stadium and Wesco didn't. And some Wesco fans, there aren't many of them, the best of times, but some of them aren't too happy with the the different circumstances. But Elche got the job done, a really strong performance against Athletic Club. And Lucas Boyer as well, outstanding. And I think he's one to keep an eye out for in the next couple of years. He's only 25 and and this season he's been really impressive at Elche, a really physical, combative striker. And one kind of like Shimi Avila um, in previous seasons who, who catches the eye and he's popular with the fans. And it wouldn't be a surprise to see him move on to a bigger club. In the near future, Elche have already exercised their, their option to buy him. It was a loan move initially from, from Argentina. And so it could be one player to keep an eye on in the league next season. Some boy, right? Some boy. Um, Joaquin actually ruined my run the other week. I was running by the river, the Guadalquivir, the river that cuts through Sevilla. And uh, he was doing some kind of photo shoot or something in full kit. So I had to completely change my route. And I'm a creature of habit. I don't like doing that. So that's one bone I have to pick with Joaquin. Um, but don't walk in. He's just wandering around, having photos taken, and the full yeah. basket just be like. <laughs> he was in a full, he was proper full kit wanker as well, like in the middle of the river, you know. But uh, anyway, and also, I mean, they say Joaquin is the, the the heart of this team. Of course, he is. He's been there for so long, and obviously, he spent years away. That wasn't maybe of his choosing. That was more a financial situation. Um, but he's definitely uh, Verde Blanco to the core. Also, Verde Blanco to the core in a more modern sense. I mean, obviously, Joaquin is a blow-in. I mean, sorry, Joaquin is from Sevilla. He's local. He's a Betico to the core. But the guy who maybe emphasizes this modern incarnation of Betis is Sergio Canales, who's from uh, Santander. And he's definitely taken the club in a real way. And I think it's a shame that he's left out of the Spanish squad. I think he deserved to go, uh, definitely. And um, I'm disappointed personally for him that he's not in the squad. Very, very likable player, very, very good player. But... Uh, but yeah, I guess Lucho made some interesting calls, didn't he? But that's for another podcast. We'll touch on a bit of the Europe, the Eurocopa, as I say here, or the European Championships, and once the Champions League and Europa League finals are done with, which will be next week, uh, we'll be back next Monday to talk on them and have maybe a loose conversation about the, the season of European football as a whole. But just before we sign off, guys, uh, your moment of the week um, and your social media handles for each of you. Um, for me, I would say my moments of the week had to be, in a funny way, I think it was actually the three lads, I can't remember who it was, Sam, it was Thomas Lamar, Moussa Dembele, and maybe Renan Lodi coming into the stadium, into the Jose Zirilla, dancing. Yeah. Who's the other player? Was it Dembele? Uh, oh, and Carrasco. Carrasco. Yeah, and Carrasco. Oh, yeah, I think Carrasco, yeah. Yeah. It was just so funny because it was just 10 season, you know, no fans, meaning grinding at times. And just like these three guys who were just like, you know, playing for probably the most competitive coach in European and world football after, you know, a real battle of a title race where they were under such pressure for the whole season. They were never the underdogs. They were almost always the favorites. I thought that it was great that these guys who in many ways are, you know, underdog contributors. I mean, Carrasco, for instance, has been superb out of nowhere almost. I thought that it was a great moment and it really made me laugh. Uh, that was my moment of the week. And my social media handle is Azulfili on Twitter. Uh, John, what was your moment of the week? 
my moment of the week happened midweek last week and it was just such a nice familiar warming feeling so i was watching burnley against liverpool and at one stage in the first half james tartoski under little pressure lettered the ball into the stands and he got cheered by the burnley fans and i thought that was just beautiful it, it just reminded me of the days of yore when there was full stadiums and another another element that I've liked, and it's not only in the Burnley game, but it's just how English fans would try to shithouse referees into giving their sides decisions over really innocuous things that are clearly never fouled and remonstrating and trying to pressurise referees. I can't tell you how much I've missed the little things like that. And my social media handle for your sins is at NotoriousJOS on Twitter. Fantastic. Jasmine? Um, I have to say that I know it's kind of your moment of the week that you put into the WhatsApp chat, but I'm stealing it. The uh, rapid Veen players on the bench uh, joking around. One turns a bottle to the other's uh, shorts, spraying him, making him look like he wet himself. And him, the person with the wet pants going to play fight the one who did it to him running away and the other two teammates just pointing as him as he's just wet himself. It was just one of those immature things that you would like to do yourself to your mates. And my um, handle is at underscore Jasmine Barber on Twitter. When you say play fighting, it was really actually like, he was clearly fuming, do you know what I mean? Like, but he, he knew it wasn't acceptable to like attack his teammates, so he tried to like play it off as play fighting. But I'd say if he if he had his way, he would have given a proper slap. <laughs> so funny, uh, Sam. I'm guessing I know where your moment is going to come from. Yeah, my moment from via the lead, like all great footballing moments, but it's weirdly similar to John's because mine is the 92 minutes 54 seconds on the clock. Uh, via lead winger coming down the flank and Kieran Trippier just leathers it as hard as he possibly can and the celebrations were like a goal I mean Koke ran across the field to scream in his face Diego Simeone was there throwing his arms all over the place and it was just great because you could imagine if Kieran Trippier was still playing Sunday league football somewhere in Lancashire the celebration would have been exactly the same and it was just everything that Aleti has been about and really back to basics Back to your roots, football, in after such a fantastic season for Atletico. So it was a perfect ending to the season and the referee blew his whistle just afterwards. He just allowed Simeone and Gokke to go a bit crazy first and and then with Trippi had the ball in his hands, he blew the whistle. So that for me was, was the best moment and for social media, you can follow me at Sam Leverage. Did you see that there's a picture of it actually where it just captures Gokke uh, like he's basically shouting in Trippier's face. Trippier doesn't really know what's going on. He's shouting too, but it's not really like any control shout. And then you just see Simeone on top of the board of them. It's perfectly captured still. It's brilliant. It's uh, one of those I pictures think... that should be a work of art in some art gallery somewhere, but oh, instead it's from Vida Lead with the guy from <laughs> Lancashire playing football. And the great thing is too, because of the Jose Zerilla's seats are all purple, you can tell it's why he did it instantly. It's not like other... More generic stadium. There's no stadium sense. like it. I've never seen anything yeah. as purple as, as the Jose Zoria. It's aggressively purple. but uh, And also, apparently, um, there's a bet or something where Carrasco is going to give Trippier a haircut. And apparently, the haircut is so bad that uh, Carrasco is holding off to after the squad photo is taken with the trophy because he, he doesn't want to ruin yeah. the squad photo. So I don't know Have what you seen the video that came out? 
No. There's a great video of Carrasco chasing Trippier around the pitch, or the Jose Zorilla, with a pair of clippers, and Trippier just running <laughs> running away <laughs> like kids in a school playground. And Trippier's running away because he doesn't want his hair cut <laughs> until after all the photos <laughs> have been taken. But even in the trophy, in the trophy parade and everything, when it was handed over to Atletico, all the Atleti players are just in jeans and tracksuit bottoms with a shirt on. And then Trippy is there in like shirt, trousers, and shoes—a proper peaky blinder look. Trippy is going to go to the Euros now, like a, like he's a dog's bollocks with his La Liga title in his back pocket. Uh, That's because he is. I know, but he's going to go back with a shit haircut. <laughs> 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 you know, like, what was the last one? Last Englishman, David Beckham, right? He's going to come back with the uh, uh, David yeah, Beckham, 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 McManaman, and Laurie Cunningham—the three other Englishmen to win La Liga. Fair play to him anyway. Great achievement, isn't it? Like, you know, to go from a Spurs cast off to La Liga winner. It's incredible, really. But Kieran uh, Trippier, Ballon d'Or. <laughs> um, yeah, but anyway, thanks guys for joining me. Really, really enjoyed that. Really very interesting chat. And uh, we'll see you soon next week for our final show of the season. So thanks guys and enjoy the build up to Villarreal United and City Chelsea. And uh, we'll see you next week for the last one of the season. Go on, talk to you.